Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning will again be 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7. This description of Christian love that that Paul gives us in uh, the the middle of his discussion of spiritual gifts. We've been uh, looking at these verses for several weeks now and we have been working our way through them phrase by phrase. And this morning we come uh, to the last phrase of verse 5. So let us again read these verses together and ask the Holy Spirit that He would lead us into His truth. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, this is Your Word, inspired by Your Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul. We ask now that that same Spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would now attend the reading and the preaching of those words that they might renew our minds and transform our lives, that they might indeed make all things new, that we might be enabled more and more to love in a manner that is like this, a manner in which we have been loved by You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when was the last time that you were angry? We all are wired differently. And so some of us answer that question in weeks, some of us answer that question in, in days. Unfortunately, I probably have to answer that question in hours more often than not. When was the last time that you were angry? However you are wired, whether your, your fuse is long or short, whether you explode in anger or whether you sort of boil below the surface, you know what it is to be angry. You know what it is in this fallen world to experience that that emotion of anger. In this world, you simply cannot avoid it. In fact, there are times in this world where it is your moral obligation to be angry. There are times in this world where it would be wrong if you were not angry. There are things in this world that make God angry, and they ought to make His people angry. And yet, how Unlike God's anger, our anger usually is. We do not get angry in the same ways, and we do not get angry at the same things. And that's why Paul gives us his instruction in Ephesians where he says, be angry. There's a place for that. There's a place to be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. So we are to be angry, but in our anger we are to avoid sin. So how how do we do that? How do we avoid sinning in our anger? I think in the last phrase of verse 5, here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is helping us to answer that question. He He is helping us to understand what it looks like to be both a person marked by Christian love and a person who at times is angry. How does Christian love respond to anger? How does Christian love handle anger? 
That is the question that Paul is addressing here in the last phrase of of verse 5. In the English Standard Version, it is translated this way. It says, love is not irritable or resentful. I grew up on the NIV, and the NIV says, love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. If we were just going to do a very literal translation, it might say something like, love is not provoked, and it does not reckon evil. Love is not provoked, and it does not reckon evil. He actually doesn't use the word anger. And yet we recognize that in both instances, he is telling us what to do with the anger that we feel. And so, what are we supposed to do with anger? First, Paul tells us love is not provoked. So what does it mean to say that love is not provoked? Well, the word that Paul uses here, the word that that is translated as provoked, is a word that that has the the meaning of of being moved to strong emotion. It is is a word that conveys a a very strong emotion, that that something has happened around you that has caused you to feel something deeply, that has caused you to to feel something intensely. But it it doesn't stop with the emotion. To be provoked is, is more than to feel the emotion. To be provoked is to, to feel the emotion in such a way that you are moved to action. And so the, the meaning of the word that Paul uses here is a word that says that you feel something deeply, and because you feel it deeply, you are then moved to act. The only other place that this word is used in the New Testament is actually in Acts chapter 17. There, Paul enters the city of Athens, and, and when he sees the idolatry that surrounds him, when he sees all of the idols, when he, when he sees even an idol to an unknown God, we are told that he is provoked. He's, he's provoked by the rampant idolatry that he sees, and, and because he is provoked, because he, he feels intensely, he is moved to action. He is moved to enter the Areopagus and, and preach the gospel to these people who do not know God. But normally, this word is associated not with with the the preaching of the gospel. More often, in the Old Testament at least, it is associated with the the pouring out of of wrath. To be provoked is to be provoked to to anger. We we see this when we see how the word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 15, Moses is laying out the law for us and he's describing to us uh, the way that the, the, the people of Israel are to deal with various sins and with various sinners. And he comes in, ex, in Numbers 15 to speak of the person who sins with a high hand. The person who simply decides that, that he will not obey God, that he will do what he wants. The person who without remorse or, or second thought decides that he will defy God. And we are told in Numbers 15 that the person who sins with a high hand provokes the Lord. He provokes the Lord. He, he provokes the Lord to have his wrath poured out and he will be cut off from his people. In Psalm 74, it's the reverse. It's Asaph he's, who's writing, and he's actually wondering why God's not provoked. He said, how long are you going to let people blaspheme you without being provoked? Why, why are you not pouring out your wrath on these people who scoff at you, these people who revile your name? God, why are you not provoked? And in Proverbs chapter 14, we see it again where we're told that the one who oppresses the poor provokes the Lord. 
stirs up the wrath of the Lord. He brings God's judgment upon His own head. And so as we, as we see the way that this word is used throughout the Old Testament, we see again and again that to be provoked is to be moved to anger. Anger at injustice. Anger at evil. Anger at sin. But not only to be moved to anger, but to feel that anger in such a way that you are moved to action. And so we have to understand what it is that Paul is saying. We, are, we feel anger. We feel anger in such a way that, that we're moved to action. That we're moved to, to act against that which is evil. But as we see here, in the Old Testament, God is often provoked. He, he, is, he is often provoked anger. So what is the virtue that Paul is talking about? What is the virtue in not being provoked? Why does Paul tell us that, that Christian love is, is not provoked? Well, well, let me say first that there is no virtue in simply being slow to feel anger. You know, there, there's no virtue in being dispassionate. There, there's no virtue in being apathetic. There's, there's no virtue in just simply seeing evils in the world and not really feeling very deeply about it. That's not the virtue that Paul is, is talking about here. In fact, when we look at the Old Testament and it tells us that God is slow to anger, that is not at all what it means. Because Psalm 2 tells us that that Christ is actually quick to anger, that His anger is quickly kindled, that the moment He sees evil, He is angry about it. That his, His emotion of anger is actually immediately stirred. He doesn't delay in hating evil, He hates it right away, and we ought to be The same, when we see injustice, we ought to feel deeply about it. We ought to long for it to be no more. We ought to hate it passionately. There is no virtue in in seeing sin and saying, well, you know, I can let that go. There's no no virtue in, in seeing evil and being unmoved. That's not what we mean when we speak of being slow to Anger, But rather, when we look at what God means, when He says that He is slow to anger, what we mean is that He is slow in pouring out the wrath that the anger against sin requires. The virtue is in postponing wrath. The, the virtue is in delaying the expression of anger. Not to be provoked means that, that you do not move immediately to pour out the wrath that your anger uh, says that the evil Deserves. This is what the psalmist was looking for in Psalm 74. This is what had him so confused. He, he saw all the evil around him and he wondered, God, why are you not provoked? Why are you not acting? But God was being slow to anger. It wasn't that he didn't hate the sin, but he was slow. He remained unprovoked. In fact, this is what Paul says about God throughout most of the Old Testament. There are moments, there are flashes where God's anger shines through as a, as a sort of testimony, as a, as a warning. But for the most part in the Old Testament, God allows sins to go unpunished. He does not treat people as they deserve. And this is the question that was raised in Romans chapter 3 when when Paul says, how can a good and righteous God pass over sins? How can He leave sins unpunished? How can He do that? And we're told in Romans chapter 3 that, that God was able to pass over former sins, that He was able to leave those sins unpunished, that He was able to be slow to anger. Because he had a plan for dealing with his wrath that was beyond the mysteries of what we could possibly begin to understand. He was going to pour out that wrath, not upon the sinner, but upon his own son. 
And so Jesus Christ was put forward as the propitiation. That's a, that's a big word. It's not a word that we use very often, but it's a word that simply means the sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God. It, it is a propitiation. It is the sacrifice that absorbs the wrath, that, that turns the wrath away. And we are told that God was patient, that he, that he overlooked former sins, that He was slow to anger, that He was unprovoked because He was planning to pour out that wrath upon His Son. That those who repent and believe in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. And so the virtue, the virtue of not being provoked is the virtue of delaying wrath. But, but why? Well, we see it right there in God's plan. The, the reason that, that wrath is delayed is not so that sinners can get away with it, not so that sinners can enjoy their folly for a moment longer, but rather, wrath is delayed that sinners might have an opportunity to repent. See, there's nothing virtuous about a judge who just waits a long time to, to, to carry out a sentence. That's not virtuous in itself. But rather, the virtue of God's slowness, the, the virtue of God's patience, is that He is creating a space for sinners to have the opportunity to repent. Peter himself tells us that that is why God is slow. He's not slow the way we are slow. He's not slow because he's unconcerned. He's not slow because he's disinterested. He's not slow because he's unable. He's not slow because he just hasn't got around to it yet. But rather, he is slow because he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. That is not his delight, but rather his delight is when a sinner is saved. He is the shepherd who will go after the one sheep and, and, and bring him back And know that in heaven there is great rejoicing when one sinner is reclaimed. God delights in repentance. He delights in the salvation of sinners. And so therefore, He is slow to anger. Not slow to hate sin, but slow to pour out His wrath so that sinners might have an opportunity to repent. This is what it means for God to be unprovoked. This is what it means for God to be slow to anger. And Paul is saying that as Christians, we ought to love that same way. We too ought to be slow to anger. When Paul says that Christian love is not provoked, he means that we as Christians are not moved immediately to express wrath when we see evil. Especially when we experience evil perpetrated against our Selves. The Christian is slow to anger in the same way that, that God is slow to anger. This is, this is the opposite of the disciples. Remember, the disciples were with Jesus, and when they were passing through Samaria, and there was a, there was a village there that, that didn't want to accept Jesus, the disciples were like, okay, well, let's call down some fire on these people. You know, th- these people have spurned the very Son of God. Let's, let's, let's give them what they deserve. And Jesus says, no, now is not the time. We see it even in In Jesus' very first sermon, do you remember? Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in His own hometown, and He he reads from the prophet Isaiah, and He reads the passage about the coming day of the Lord. If you go back and you look at that passage in the Old Testament, that passage talks about the day of the Lord being both a day of salvation and a day of wrath. It is a day when God's people will be redeemed and a day when His enemies will be destroyed. But when Jesus preaches from that text, He doesn't read the part about God's wrath. He says, today is the day of salvation. A day of wrath is coming, but it is delayed. 
A day of wrath is, is on the horizon, and, and Paul himself speaks regularly of the wrath to come. He, he speaks of sinners storing up wrath for themselves. The, the wrath is still real, but God has restrained it. He has held it back. Why? So that sinners might have a chance to repent. That's what the disciples didn't get. It's what we so often don't get. We so often want the evil to get it now. We want especially the people who, who hurt us to, to get it now. And Paul says that's not love. Love doesn't long for, for their destruction to come quickly. Rather, love longs for them to experience grace. Love longs for even our enemies, even those who have harmed us, to be given space to, to be drawn to repentance. Paul tells us in Romans that that is what God's patience is for. He says, do you not know that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance? He said, don't spurn the opportunity. It's the same plea the the author of Hebrews makes. He says, do not neglect so great a salvation. This is what has been done for you. Today, therefore, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion, but receive this good news. Cling to this gospel. Cling to this Savior. Because repentance is offered to you. God is not provoked. He is slow to anger. And we, as his people, must be the same. When we see those who, who are evil and we see those who do wrong, we, we do not deny the evil. We, we, we do not pretend that they are other than they are. But nor do we, like the disciples, call down fire from heaven. But rather we plead with God, even as Moses pleaded with God, God, have mercy. Grant to this people repentance unto life. Give them time. Give them space that they might come to know the wonders of your love. So what we ask ourselves this morning is simply this. Does that describe your attitude? Does that describe your anger? Are you angry at evil? Are you angry at sin? But willing to wait. Willing to wait as long as as God is willing to wait. Willing to wait that God might grant to them repentance unto life. Willing to wait that they might escape what is due to them for their sins. And that they might instead know the mercies of God. Does that describe your love? Because Paul says that's what Christian love looks like. Too often we're like Jonah sitting on the hill waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed and and sort of pouting when it doesn't happen. God, where are you? We're like Asaph in Psalm 74. God, where are you? Why aren't you zapping your enemies? And God says, no, be patient. Remember what he said to Jonah? He said, in this city there are many people who simply do not know their right hand from their left. They, they, they don't know right from wrong. Should I not have compassion on these people? Should I not give them an opportunity to repent? Well, if God is so patient, how much more? We who have benefited from that patience, how much more ought we to be patient? But notice something here. We translate it as love is slow to anger. Love is not easily provoked. But that's not actually what Paul says. He says simply love is not provoked. Think about what that means. Love isn't ever provoked. Love never runs out. You see, the timetable is with God. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 12, isn't it? He says, listen, vengeance belongs to Him. He will will tell us when the day has come. He will, will tell us when time has run out. But until then, you never do. From now, as long as God gives you breath, you will remain unprovoked as my disciple. You will remain an ambassador of my mercy. You will remain one who calls people to come and to drink deeply of a fountain they have no right to. To come and feast at a table they have have no right to enjoy. 
Not because, not because they've bought it, not because they've earned it, but simply because God is patient, because God is merciful. And He says, listen, if you will come, you can eat. If you will believe, you can live. That's not an offer we make once, twice, or even a dozen times. That is an offer we make so long as He gives us breath. Because we have experienced that grace. And we want that grace to flow to, through us to others. And of course, that leads us into the second thing that Paul tells us here about love. Not only does he tell us that love is not provoked, but he tells us that love does not reckon evil. And so if the first thing that he tells us reminds us that, that love is slow to anger, even as God is slow to anger, the second thing he tells us is that love is quick to forgive. It's not just that we delay wrath. It's that we actually forgive offenses. The NIV translates this phrase as, as love keeps no record of wrongs. And it's actually a pretty good translation because what Paul literally says is love does not reckon evil. Love does not impute evil. Love does not count evil. We, we're used to that word getting translated a number of, of different ways, but it's actually exactly the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. There, as Paul discusses the blessings of our justification, he says that one of the blessings of our justification is that God will not reckon our sins against us. He will not reckon our sins. He will not treat us as our sins deserve. He will not count them against us, but rather, but rather our sins are forgiven. There's not a, a temporary stay, but rather our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. The, the, the record of debts that stood against us, Paul says in Colossians 2, it has been nailed to the cross. It has been paid in full. That is the blessing of our justification. That's what it means for God not to reckon our sins against us. We will never be called to account for those sins because the wrath that was due to those sins has been pulled, poured out in full upon Jesus Christ. It's not just that we, we got a second chance. Rather, we, we were forgiven. We were pardoned. Our guilt was removed. You see, if you're only doing a temporary stay, then you have to keep track of, 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 of the sins in order that you can deal with them later. Yeah, you're not going to deal with them right now, but if you're going to deal with them later, you need to know what they are. And, and Paul says, no, love doesn't do that. That's why the NIV translates this as, as love keeps no record of wrongs. We're not, we're not keeping track of the sins that are committed against us. We're not, we're not keeping track so that we can make sure they pay in full later. Yeah, we'll be gracious now, but, but later, the hammer is going to fall. That's not the attitude of Christian love. Rather, Christian love offers full forgiveness. It offers full pardon. And it does it not just once, but it, it does it without limit. Remember what Jesus said to His disciples? The disciples came to him and they said, you know, this, this forgiveness thing, Jesus, it's tricky. You know, how often are we supposed to do that? How often do we have to forgive our brother when they, when they sin against us? And, and Jesus is like, well, let me think about that. How, how about this? How about 70 times 7 in a day? I think if we understand Jesus, we understand he doesn't mean we're supposed to actually keep track. <laughs> And that we're, we're supposed to, to count until we get to you know, 490 and then when we get there, then finally, finally, we can let them have it. He says, listen, there is no limit. We are willing 
to forgive. We are willing to pardon. We are, we are willing to set aside guilt as far as the East is from the West because that, that is the way that we have been loved. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now at this point I have to offer a word of, of clarification because I think it would be easy to misunderstand that. It would be easy to to think that you sort of always let people start from square one, that you don't remember anything about their past. But that's not what Paul is saying. There is actually a place for remembering. There there is a place for remembering what people have, have done. In fact, you can't love them well if you don't remember. Parents have to remember the offenses of their children, not so that they can hold them against them, but so that they can love them well as they seek to shepherd them and guide them in the paths of, of righteousness. And it actually works that way in other relationships as well. We see Paul himself do this. When Paul is writing his second letter to Timothy, he warns him about a man named Alexander. He says, listen, there's a man named Alexander there, and he hates you. And he will do everything in his power to hurt you. And you need to be aware of it. You see, Paul can't write that sentence unless he remembers what Alexander did. But that's not the same thing as keeping a record of wrongs. Because Paul has no malice in his heart. Paul isn't after the destruction or the the harm of this Alexander. Rather, he just wants Timothy to be wise. To be wise. And and there will be places where you have to be wise. There there are places where where you have to say to somebody, because of your past sins, we're not going to allow this. Or because of your past sins, we're not going to allow you to to go here. There is a a place for that. And that is not keeping a record of wrongs. That is is simply wisdom. What, what, What Christian love requires is that we do not... Keep malice in our heart. That we, that we have no desire for their harm, but that we are ready to forgive. And when we begin to, to, to make that distinction, I think it allows us to answer that sort of age-old question that people so often wrestle with. I, I hear people come to me and they wonder, well, can I forgive somebody before they repent? Can I forgive somebody before they repent? Have you ever asked that question? you ever had somebody ask you that question? Maybe that's, maybe that's a question that only gets asked to pastors, but, but I hear that question a lot. And usually, when the person is asking that question, what what they want is they want a right to hold on to their anger and to hold on to their malice until the person forgives. and I mean, until the person repents. And so, while I can technically agree that you actually can't forgive somebody until they repent, I can also say, unambiguously, that that doesn't give you any right to maintain malice in your heart until they repent. But rather, you stand ready to forgive. You stand desiring their good. And yes, you cannot technically hold out forgiveness to them before they repent, but you stand ready at a moment's notice. You stand ready to pursue their good even before they repent. Because you love them and you desire their good. And because you long for them to know the same grace that has called you out of darkness into light. This is what Christian love does with this anger. This is what it means to be angry and not sin. Love is not provoked. It does not seek to pour out the consequences of sin before time. But rather it leaves vengeance in the hand of God and says, as long as you give me breath, Father, I will plead for mercy. We see this in Jesus as He's on the cross pleading, even with His last breaths, for mercy to be shown to those who are murdering Him. We see it in Stephen who who does the same thing, pleading for, for mercy to those who are murdering Him. And we, with our last breath, ought to plead for mercy to those who hate us, to those who who harm us. We ought to long for their good. We ought to long for God to turn their hearts. Nate Saint said something like that. He said, listen, I'm willing to go into the jungles and, and put my life on the line because what does it matter if they kill me? I already know the Lord. 
I will gladly give my life that they might have a chance to hear the good news of the Gospel. You may not be asked to go and minister the Gospel to those who are literally going to kill you with a spear. But you are asked to proclaim the Gospel, to love well those who will not always love you in return. Love is not provoked, but more than that, it is also quick to forgive. It keeps no record of wrongs, but rather love forgives. Love covers over. Love removes guilt as far as the east is from the west and says, if you will simply call upon my Savior, all this can be wiped away. The blood of Christ that washed me clean can wash you too. And love desires all who will to come and be cleansed. That's what Christian love is. And what I want you to see is because we have been loved this way, because Christ has loved us, because He was unprovoked, because He was slow to pour out His wrath, because He he was quick to forgive, because He purchased our forgiveness even with His own precious blood and body broken. We are now free to love this way. But more than being free to love this way, we are enabled to love this way because Christ secured for us not only forgiveness, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit who now indwells us. And Paul tells us that the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe. And it is by His power that you will be able to love as you have been loved. So if you are here this morning and you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, I call upon you to make this your ambition. Make this your prayer. Father, teach me to love that way. Teach me to love like this. Teach me to love even my enemies. Teach me to be unprovoked. Teach me to keep no record of wrongs. Teach me to be angry and not sin. And because He calls us to it, we can know He will answer that prayer. We know that He will go to work, not always as quickly as we'd like, but He will begin that good work and He will carry it on to completion. And because He will enable us to love this way, now in part, then in full, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe this? Amen. Believe it with me. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We do rejoice in the love that You have shown us. And we pray, Father, that by Your grace, through the power of Your Spirit, You would teach us to love this way in return. Father, may Your love flow through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.